Exodus 19. Now Moses, Moses has now in Exodus chapter 19 come full circle. He's made it all the way around. Exodus chapter 3 verse 12 told us, Certainly I will be with you, God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. I'll be with you. And this sign shall be, this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Here's your sign, Moses. This is how you're going to know that I'm the one who sent you. How's that, God? When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. At this mountain. Mount Sinai. That's where Moses started out. That's where God called Moses. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, same mountain. Moses comes before the burning bush. You remember the story. And he is called by God to a ministry, a mission, an incredible task to lead Israel out of Egypt. And he's done that. And he has now led Israel all the way back to the mountain where God said, here's how you're going to know. You're going to know because you're going to worship right here with all the people of Israel. And so Moses is there. The people are there. And as we said Sunday, how do we know? Do we know that God has been with Moses so far? Absolutely. When we look back with hindsight and we know every difficult situation that's come up, we see God there with Moses. We see God going ahead of Moses. God feeding the people and taking care of Moses. God providing water. God protecting against the enemy. Leading through the desert, through the sea. It's absolutely amazing. God fulfilling his promise but the ultimate fulfillment was not in what would happen along the way it would be at the end of the journey that's important for us to understand we will know absolutely 100% for sure that God has been the one leading us when we get to heaven at that moment when we worship the Father at Mount Zion when we bow before Jesus we're going to know that any doubt that you have ever had will be completely cast aside i got to wait for that? Yeah, it's called faith. And God is building it into each one of us. Moses has seen God. He's talked to God. He knows God is with him. He knows also now that God will be with him. Because God has fulfilled his promise. And Mount Sinai is the proof of the promise. Now, it's important to stop and recognize this destination because, again, we too have come to a mountain. The writer of Hebrews, I believe it's Paul. We can debate that another time if you disagree. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, speaking in contrast to Moses' Mount Sinai, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I like that. And to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, if you hear that, and if you stop and think realistically for a moment, you have to ask the question, really? We have? We're at the heavenly Mount Zion? We're at the kingdom? We've come to this place? Where are the myriads of angels? I mean, a handful of you are good singers, but angels? How do we know? We're there right now? Are you sure? You might look around the world and say, This is Zion? This is it? We're in the kingdom right now? Are you sure? The reality is when the Hebrew writer wrote this passage, he was writing it proleptically. Some of you have heard me use that word before. Proleptic. It's a, it's a way of writing that is writing something as if it's already happened because it's happening is so absolutely sure. We know it's going to happen. And so we're just going to write it down as if it's happened. You're already there. You've already arrived. Another example is Ephesians chapter 2. 
where Paul says that God seated us with him in the heavenly places. I have not personally been in the heavenly places, but I am going to be. No doubt about it. And so proleptically, Paul writes down, you're there. You've arrived. You're at the heavenly Mount Zion. And, and that's where we are right now. It's something that is so sure to come that it is presented as having already happened. Now, tonight we're going to be directed once again to the prophetic as we study Exodus chapter 19. But before we get there, I need you to bear with me a few minutes. We, depending on how long all this takes, we, we may not get done with all of Exodus 19. I'll kind of leave that up to you and we'll watch the clock and see what happens. But before we get there, I have to talk to you, want to talk to you about a view of prophecy, biblical prophecy, that is being propagated in the church today. It's coming on very strong. It's interesting that, that people are beginning to really buy into this. And it's called preterism. Preterism. Now, if you happen to yourself be a preterist, don't raise your hand, don't jump around, just hear me out. If you don't even know what preterism is, let me define it for you. It is most, a preterist believes that most, if not all, of the prophet, prophetic events in the Old and New Testaments have already been fulfilled. All of the things that the Old Testament tells us are supposed to happen, all the things that the New Testament describes will happen, happened. The preterist believes that's the deal, and it all happened back in A.D. 70 with the fall of Jerusalem. Now there's another point of view, the historicist point of view, that says, yeah, that all happened in the past. The preterist makes a, a change, a difference. They say long about Revelation 21 and 22, that the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, that is yet to come. Everything else has already happened. It's past tense. It's done. It's history. There are some problems with preterism. And the reason why I bring it up tonight, again, is it's, it's amazing to me, preterism has, become, has come on the rise, especially in the Northwest. Oregon and Washington. There is a lot of preterist teaching that is going on in the church. And the average people sitting in the church, you and I, just kind of accepting it. Just listening to it and going, oh, well that must be the way it is. Please, when I'm teaching or preaching at the bridge, and I've said this before, don't assume that because Rick says it, that's the way it is. Please test it. Make sure that it's what the Word is saying and not just Rick going off in a weird direction. Because who knows, someday I may go off. I make it out there, and I'm going to need you to pull me back. Test it by Scripture. They believe a preterist that the end time scenario Jesus gave in Matthew 24 and 25, and repeated with explicit description in the book of Revelation, was completely fulfilled in A.D. 70, and that we are currently living in, quote, the spiritual kingdom of God right now. We're in the kingdom as described in Revelation. Now some shake your heads, and I would agree with you. How can you say we're in the kingdom? But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let me give you some responses to this idea of preterism. If you've heard of it or heard it, then this will help. If you haven't, you probably will at some point. Some problems with it. And if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. I'm drawing, by the way, heavenly from a, uh, an article written by Randall Price in Israelite Glory magazine. If you don't get that magazine, I highly encourage you to get it. I think it's like 16 bucks a year. And it's excellent. It's right on the cutting edge of what's happening in Israel. It's very good in teaching. And I, I highly recommend it. So this is a lot of this comes right out of this article. And Randall Price is a, an excellent uh, Bible scholar. The first problem with preterism is it demands a faulty date for the writing of the book of Revelation. Preterism assumes, has to assume, that Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. 
that the book of Revelation, John's revelation from Jesus, had to have been given in 64, 65, 66, somewhere around there. It had to precede the fall of Jerusalem because for a preterist, the book of Revelation describes the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Not future events, future to us today, but past events fulfilled in AD 70 in the Nero time frame. It has to have been written before then. Here are some problems with that. All of the church fathers who have reliable writings, men like Irenaeus, who lived from 120 A.D. to 202 A.D., all of them teach and believe, or taught and believe, that Revelation was written late, not early. The end of the 90s. Around 95, 96, 97 A.D. Not before 70. Why do they believe that? Well, here's one thing that was written. Um, Arrhenius wrote, For it, Revelation was seen no long time ago. Almost in our generation. His generation would have started right around 100 A.D. He was born in 120. His generation would be after the turn of that century. And he says, It was seen no long time ago, almost in our generation, toward the end, listen to this, of Domitian's reign. Who was Domitian? He was the Roman emperor who followed Nero. You remember Nero? The church-hating, church-persecuting Nero. Nero was the one who was into execution. Nero died, what was it, Cheryl, A.D. 67? 68? Which one? Do you remember? It's 67 or 68. Nero committed suicide. I think it was 68. He committed suicide. He was followed later by Domitian. Domitian wasn't as much an executor as he was an exiler. He's the one who would exile people to islands such as Patmos, which we know is where John was exiled when he wrote and received the book of Revelation. So for John to be on Patmos, exiled there by Domitian, it would have naturally happened historically after AD 70, after the fall of Jerusalem. Preterism, remember, has to happen before. The revelation has to be received before the fall of Jerusalem. That's important. Now hang with me for a few minutes on this kind of background stuff. It's very important and you'll see why. The condition also and description of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the seven churches in Asia that are described in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, make no mention of Paul's missionary journeys. No mention of them. If the Revelation was written in the 60s, they would have mentioned his missionary journeys. It would have had some connection there because that's when Paul was planting churches. No mention of Paul, no mention of the journeys. And as a matter of fact, the description of those churches and what was going on, if you read through those two chapters, to describe seven cities in Asia that were different by AD 90 than they were back in AD 70. And I encourage you to look, to check that out historically, to study that, look at that. It all indicates a later date. Also, the references to the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. The New Jerusalem makes an assumption that the Old Jerusalem is not there. So it had to have been written after the Old Jerusalem fell. But let me, let me give you some more here. Preterism, not only does it demand a faulty date for the writing of Revelation, it lacks historical agreement. It takes descriptions of unprecedented and unsurpassed judgments. As you read through chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments, all the, the sealed judgments, these unbelievable, you read through them, and if you've ever studied the book, it's mind-boggling how dramatic. At one time, a third of all humanity on earth, dead. At another time, a third of those who are left, dead. I mean, it's catastrophic, it's worldwide, the description of it is unsurpassed, it's unequal to anything in history. 
And preterism takes the book of Revelation and says those are just allegorical exaggerations to prove a point. What's interesting to me is we will take the whole Bible as literal except to when we get to the book of Revelation. And then all of a sudden we step back and go, no, it's an allegory. It's a big word picture. We'll take other books of prophecy like that as well. The book of Daniel, no, those are just word pictures, just allegories. It's not a literal prophecy. It's not going to have literal fulfillment. But gang, every prophecy that the Lord has given in the past that we've seen fulfilled, whether it's in Jesus or in other situations, have all been fulfilled literally. Literally. And so when I say, you read the book of Revelation, I look for literal fulfillment, not allegory. And if you're looking at it literally, nothing like what is described in Revelation has ever happened. Nothing. Even the fall of Jerusalem, as terrible as it was for the Jews in Jerusalem, it was not a worldwide cataclysmic event. It was a holocaust, one of many for the Jews, but it was not worldwide. It did not affect all of mankind Jew and Gentile alike it was the fall of Jerusalem very different thing preterism forces a spiritualization of the text saying things like the clouds of heaven described in Revelation are actually uh, dust kicked up by the Roman soldiers it just doesn't make sense thirdly preterism ignores the miraculous existence of Israel Because to take a true preterist point of view, you would believe that the fall of Jerusalem was God's final judgment on Israel for killing Jesus. This was God's way of saying, okay, you killed Messiah, you killed my son, therefore Israel, I'm done with you. You're gone. You're out of here. You could hold that view, that opinion, if in fact the Jews had been utterly wiped off the face of the earth. But were they? In spite of how bad it was? They continued to exist for almost 2,000 years until 1948. Israel is a nation again. That fact alone would blow preterism right out of the water. Because preterism views Israel as judged history by God. Not as a present existing people who God still has something to do with. God's judgment, they believe, brought an end to this rebellious Jewish nation, and yet this rebellious nation sprang up again. No other nation in the history of the world has ever done that. No other nation in the history of the world has ever sprung up with an old language that was thought to be dead, Hebrew, but was revitalized and now is the spoken language in Israel. And you may say, well, okay, great. That's a nice little history lesson. Slamming the preterist. Poor guy doesn't even have a chance to defend himself here tonight. Well, I don't know anyone that's preterist. Personally, I would have had him here. But what's the big deal? Why would we even talk about this stuff? Isn't like preterism and premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, all that stuff, isn't that just stuff for the scholars to worry about? Isn't it best if we just assume Jesus is coming and not worry about anything else? Who cares what people believe about how Jesus is going to come? Now most people, well not most, many people in Christianity would say that. I don't really care. I'm actually pro-millennial. I want it to happen. How it happens, I don't care. How Jesus returns to this planet, no big deal. We'll leave that to the scholars. Folks, I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake. Let me tell you why I believe what we believe about these things matters. Number one, preterism teaches that Jesus will never come again in bodily form, but will only catch us up into eternity. What does the Bible say? 
Acts chapter 1 verse 11. They also said, the angels speaking to the apostles, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, listen to this, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Just the same way. The apostles are standing around. What happened? Jesus speaks to them. He encourages them. He gives them the great commission. And then before their very eyes, the Bible describes his ascension right off of the planet. And the angels then appear. And Jesus disappears in the clouds and say, Guys, what are you standing around for? He's coming back the same way. Now that's a very different picture than a Jesus who stays in heaven and says, Come on home. I'm not coming back there to that dust bowl. Come on home. I'll bring you in. I'm not setting foot again. The Bible indicates otherwise. Zechariah verse 14, chapter 14, verse 4. Zechariah 14:4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Can it be any more clear? In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Yes, I guess it could be a little more clear. It's so specific. Prophecy that is that specific is not an allegory, gang. His feet will stand on this planet. Preterism also denies, denies our blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? It's the rapture of the church. The church being caught up. Now a lot of people are in disagreement about this whole idea of the rapture. And sometime soon on a Sunday morning I'm going to do some teaching just on the rapture. What does the Bible have to say about that? How do we know what the Bible teaches? And where does this idea come from? And is it truly biblical? It is. Listen to these two verses. Titus 2.13 Paul writes and says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, right? Righteously and godly in the present age. Looking for, it's a command game. Paul says looking for, living this way, looking for the blessed hope. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. What are we supposed to be doing, Paul? Living our lives looking for the blessed hope. Looking for the return. Watching for him to come back. Why would I be watching for him to come back? If at the actual second coming, quote-unquote, we're just caught up to heaven and that's it. Was Jesus going to come down and then bungee right back up? Preterism denies this hope that we have as Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 talks about the rapture. We'll look at that in just a minute. But verse 18, Paul says these words. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What's that all about? The Thessalonian church is a little concerned. They're a little concerned that maybe they missed it. Maybe Jesus already came. Maybe they're already in the tribulation because things were hard. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Comfort each other with these words. What words? That the dead in Christ will rise first and then we will be caught up to meet them in the air. The rapture. Talk about it. Comfort. Encourage each other with these words. The church today, when we don't focus on and study these things and understand them, how can we comfort each other with these words? It is the greatest hope in my life. Day to day, and I'm talking about like a big, grand, generic thing out there. I'm talking moment by moment when things are hard in my life, I can take a step back and go, man, the blessed hope is coming. Take me now, Jesus. I can't wait. I look forward to that. It encourages me. When my toolbox is stolen off the work site, it encourages me. You believe that? That just still ticks me off. We need to take out the special collection for Nicolo. That's another story for another time.
comfort one another with these words. He says, it is a problem, Nicola. I told you, being in a relationship with me, it's going to just come out. People are just going to hear stuff. I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Preterism, another thing, closes a blind eye. Listen to this, to the work of Satan. Because it also assumes, and this is absolutely unbelievable in today's world, that since the fall of Jerusalem, at that time, all of Revelation was fulfilled, including chapter 20. What happened there? Satan was bound. He was cast into the pit and bound. And this day, we're in the kingdom and Satan is bound. Really? I mean, turn on the news. Satan bound? Well, okay, that may be your opinion, Rick. What does the Bible say about it? Ephesians 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Paul writes, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Oh, but if Satan's bound, what do I have to worry about? Spiritual warfare? He's bound. It should be a cakewalk. Is it a cakewalk? Personally, how easy is your Christian life? Moment to moment, day to day. Do you still struggle with a sin nature? I do. John says in 1 John chapter 5.19, We know we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That does not sound like a, like a, a devil that's bound. The whole world lies in his power. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter writes, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He should say, Your adversary, the devil, growls a lot, but he's chained, so don't worry about him. No, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. If I'm a preterist, I'm saying, hey, Satan's not a problem. But the Bible says he is. Stand guard. Keep watch. Be careful. Be aware. Resist him. Because he is real. Preterism also deflates the spiritual call of readiness in my life. If I believe it's all happened, it's all past tense, and someday Jesus is just going to call me home, we're all done. If that's what I truly believe, then why would I pursue the holy life that God's called me to? Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Paul says, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night's almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the, day, the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. But we know when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself. Just as he is pure, the very hope of Jesus' return, the very looking forward to and toward his return to earth, purifies me, drives me to, calls me to a pure life. Because man, at any moment, it could happen. In any second, I've got to be ready and aware for his return. In Matthew 24, verse 42, Jesus himself said, Therefore be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Who's the head of the house? It's Satan in this world. He's the head of the house. And anyone who would follow after him, and Jesus coming for someone living in the darkness will be like a thief. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, hey, but we're not of the darkness, are we? 
We are children of light so that the day should not catch us by surprise. We should be aware, ready, looking forward to it. When the rapture happens, you know what one of my big dreams is? That everybody in the Bridge Christian Fellowship, when Jesus calls, just as we're going up, will be going, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it was today, I just had a feeling, I've been watching. I saw the clouds part just before the trumpet blast, and I was ready. And people are going, what's going on? Well, it's the rapture. Let me tell you about it. We've been studying it in our church. We're aware of these things. Jesus says, for this reason, you also must be ready. I've asked this question before. I want to ask it. How many of you believe that Jesus is going to come tonight before I'm done with this message? It's a loaded question, folks. The great news is that the majority of you did not raise your hand. And Jesus says the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So you just got the chances that he'll be here tonight. Folks, what I'm saying about all this is that your view about the coming of Jesus has immediate and dramatic impact on how you live your life today. What you believe about the end time does affect, does impact today. And so we look at these things, and so we study these things, and so we look for indications in Scripture as to what is going to happen, how it's going to happen, so that we can live lives of readiness, children of the light, eyes wide open, ready to go, completely aware. Again, God is a keeper of promises. Exodus 19 starts out that way, and you can open up to it. We're almost there. God is a keeper of promises. I promise you, Moses, you're going to know that I've been with you. How's that, God? You're going to know because you're going to come back to this mountain. And at this mountain, you're going to worship. You and all the children of Israel. And it's going to be awesome. What we believe about the coming of Jesus has dramatic impact. Peter said this, the last verse before we get into chapter 19. Know this, first of all, in the last days, mockers or scoffers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? His coming. His coming. The word is parousia. His coming. It's not where's the promise of his calling us up to heaven. Where's the promise of his coming? People saying, he's not going to come back to earth. That's a myth. That already happened. In fact, you know what's amazing? One other thing about preterism that just blows my mind is they look at Rome as the judgment, as the hammer of God. That God used Rome as, as the hammer of judgment on Israel. And they'll say, you know, like Jesus said, as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, well, that lightning was the Roman army. Problem is, the Roman army, when they attacked Jerusalem in AD 70, moved very slowly. Lightning would be a poor description for what happened historically. Furthermore, they didn't come from the east to the west. They came from the west to the east. And so that scripture is not effectively applied to Rome. Besides the fact Daniel tells us Rome is not done for, there will be a revived Roman Empire that the preterist does not even take into account. Well, I tell you all this... To get into our teaching tonight in Exodus chapter 19, it's so important you have that background, that understanding. So back to Exodus 19, at Mount Sinai, Moses has his proof of the faithfulness of God. And as I said before, you will have your proof too. Verse 1. That didn't take too long. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. But when they came out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. This will be the last stop of Israel before their 40-year death march in the wilderness. 
And that's truly what it is. It's a 40-year death march. They will march in the wilderness after disobeying God at a place called Kadesh Barnea, not believing he can take them into the promised land. And for 40 years they will march until every single adult in that generation has died before the renewed youth of Israel go on into the promised land. But now they're going to camp in and around Mount Sinai for the next 11 months. 11 months at Sinai. How do we know that? Well, Numbers chapter 10, verse 11 indicate the time frame when they head out from Sinai. You can check that on your own time. I'm going to give you a bunch of those, by the way, tonight where you just check it out on your own. So just jot it down. Now, what's interesting to me is here they are at Sinai, and the word Sinai literally means thorny. Thorny. They have come to Thorny Mountain. And what is it that happens, interestingly, on Thorny Mountain? They receive the law. It's at Thorny Mountain that Israel gets the law. Which is interesting because the purpose of the law is not to bring comfort or healing or peace. The purpose of the law is to prick and to poke. The law, the Bible tells us, is like a school mom, a school teacher. I had one of those. I had a bunch of those. But I remember Mrs. Krause. May have, may have been Miss Krause. Not sure that she could have been a Mrs. But she was a pretty harsh third grade teacher, Miss Krause was. We called her Miss Sour Krause behind her back. And I remember the first day of third grade out on the playground playing with my little friends, and I had no idea who the teacher was. I knew the name. My mom had told me the name, but I'd never seen her. I didn't have a clue. You remember those days, elementary school? You just kind of went wherever they told you to go, and when you got there, oh, this is my teacher. Okay. Clueless wonder. I love living that way. I want to live that way again. But I remember seeing her for the first time, and my first impression was right on. All right, kids, line up. And it was just from there on, it was downhill the rest of the year for Rick. Because it was third grade that I realized I could no longer get away with personality or cuteness or being the class clown. Miss Sauerkraut did not stand for it. It was in her class that I learned that I could no longer slide by. Rules were set in place. Law was given at Mrs. Sauerkraut's classroom. And the Israelites have come to a similar situation, much more serious, obviously. They've come to Thorny Mountain to receive something that would bring about a prickly, painful truth. They were sinners in need desperately of a Savior. And they missed it. They missed it. You'll see this. But this is the primary purpose of the law, Romans 5.20. The law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. By the way, Mount Sinai, Thorny Mountain, is also called Mount Horeb. You know what Mount Horeb means? This is even better. Desolate, destroyer, killer. Mount Horeb. And that's what the law does. It kills. It destroys. Don't get me wrong, the law is not bad. Oh, contraire, the law is perfect. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, which is working on me. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment, listen to this, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, and that's the problem. It is so perfect, so pure, that it opens our eyes to how imperfect and impure we are. When we stand up next to the law, the law is so flawless, gang, 
that next to it, I am revealed. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. I love this verse. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have not known, I would have not come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, and this, this is almost comical, sin taking every opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. I was fine before I heard the words, do not covet. But the second I heard those words, boy did I want to covet. I was ready to sin now. Now that it was laid out before me what sin was, what right and wrong was, do you remember that as a child? As your parents would tell you not to do things, suddenly you just kind of wanted to do them. I mean, now the intrigue is there. It's a no-no. I'm not allowed. I can't put my hand in the cookie jar. I don't care about the cookies. I just want to see if I can get away with it. That's what the law does. It draws us into that place of actually desiring to break it. That's our sin nature at work in us. We want to break the law. We want to see if we can get away with it. The question of the law itself begs, what do you want? Do you want the law? Or do you want grace? J. Vernon McGee writes in his commentary of, of, of Exodus, he says, Law demands, grace gives. Listen to these, this is great. Law says do, grace says believe. Law exacts, grace bestows. Law says work, grace says rest. Law threatens with a curse, grace entreats with a blessing. Law says do this and you will live, grace says live and you will do. Law condemns the best man. Grace saves the worst man. And I'll add one to the list. Law is an exacting school norm. Grace is a savior. Grace is a savior. Galatians 3.24 tells us the law was our schoolmaster. The Greek word there is pedagogus. Pedagogue. One who takes a hold of you as a tough teacher and drags you along to teach you what you need to know. That's what the law was for. To bring us, Paul says, unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So Moses and the children show up. They're here. They're at Thorny Mountain, or if you like, Mount Death. And they're about to hear from the Lord. And what they hear, what's going to happen here, the experience is mind-boggling. It's absolutely incredible. Verse 3. Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on, listen to this, eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. How I bore you on eagle's wings. Flip in your Bibles over to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. Beginning in verse 9, Deuteronomy 32.9, this analogy of eagle's wings is incredibly important in Scripture. And I want you to see and understand it. It's also incredibly encouraging, I think, for us tonight. Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. Remember, God told Moses, tell the people, I brought them out on eagle's wings. Now listen to this. Wow. For the Lord's portion is his people. So listen to that one more time. The Lord's portion is his people. In other words, that's what matters to God. His people. That, what is God getting out of this whole history thing? What is God getting out of all this work that he's put into the world? His people. That's his portion. 
That's, that's his salary. That's what he wants. That's what he desires more than anything else. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land. And in the howling waste of wilderness, he encircled him. Listen to the words here. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him and there was no foreign god with him. Let me tell you something about the eagle. It's absolutely amazing how an eagle will build its nest. We were just talking about this last night. The eagle, the mother eagle, will have its little eaglets. Let's call it Ernie. Ernie the eaglet. Okay? Little Ernie eaglet is born. And so mom does what every good mother in the world does. She builds the nest. She goes into this nesting situation and builds the nest for little Ernie to grow up in. But she does something interesting. In the building of that nest, she takes little sticks, sharp pointed sticks, and places them all around the nest pointing inward. Now at first, little Ernie Eaglet is very comfortable in the nest because he's too small to worry about the sticks. But as he gets bigger, as he grows, those sticks start to poke him and prick him. And he's uncomfortable. And the nest no longer is this nice place to live. It's kind of what Cheryl and I are trying to do with our kids. You know, poke them and prick them and make them uncomfortable. So, no, I'm kidding. I want them where they are right now. But this is what the eagle does. But after a while, the nest gets uncomfortable. But that's not enough for Mama Eagle. No, she comes down, and as little Ernie Eagle is getting uncomfortable but refusing to do anything about it, she stirs up the nest. She goes in and starts moving things around. And little Ernie Eaglet now, who was used to the prickly thorn being over here, now it's moved over here. And so he moves over here to get away from the thorn. And whoa, it gets him. It's the law. It's a picture of the law, folks. Thorny Mountain. Poking and pricking and, and getting us uncomfortable. Finally, the mother eagle will then, at a certain point, a given time, she will come along and she will actually grab the nest with her big talons and turn it upside down. And out goes Ernie Eaglet. Falling, screeching, squawking. Wow! down to his certain demise but the mother eagle will swoop down right underneath and catch little Ernie on her pinions, on her wings and bear him back up to the nest Ernie's safe again until mama comes along with those great talons and grabs the nest and boom, get out, Ernie Eagle goes again. And the eagle will do this over and over and over until ultimately little Ernie's falling and flapping and screeching and squawking and all of a sudden little Ernie's flying. And that's the picture. If you look back in Deuteronomy 32, he encircled him. Like an eagle that stirs up his nest that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. This is what the eagle does. And the application here to both Israel and to you and I is absolutely beautiful. Adam and Eve fell. And ultimately along comes Israel, the thorny mountain, and we gained a nest full of thorns and thistles. Remember what the curse was on Adam? Thorns and thistles will be produced for you in the world from here on out. Thorns. Sticky places, pokes and prods and prickles and uncomfortable life. The world was not intended to be this way. The world was not supposed to be as bad as it is, but the curse of sin entered the world. And like a mother eagle, the Lord comes and he builds a nest for his people and he puts us in that nest. Newborn little baby Christians. 
But he begins to stir up the nest and we start to get uncomfortable. As we grow, as we learn, as we read the scripture, as we read the law. Wasn't the Old Testament for Israel and not really for us? Why don't we just ignore the Old Testament and focus on grace? Hey, I want to focus on grace, but I need to hear the law. Because by hearing the law, I recognize my need for grace. And that's why we're studying, by the way, in the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament. That's why we're doing it. But just when I think I can handle the law, just when I start to get comfortable in my Christianity and my religiosity and my spirituality, the Lord comes over and just dumps me out of the nest. And I go screeching and squawking, I can't handle this anymore! And He catches me and carries me on His wings. And that's grace. That's grace. Now remember this analogy back in Exodus 19. This analogy is given before the law is given. God says, Moses, I I want you to go down and tell the people, remember what I've done for you. This is a picture of grace. Remember my grace because you're about to get the law. And it's going to be a very different thing. Remember my grace. Remember those three months, those four months or so that I was with you, protecting you in Egypt, bringing you out. Remember that. Remember, I bore you up as a mother eagle before law comes. Why? Because God wants them to remember that when we begin to feel poked and pricked by the law, when the nest is overturned and we begin to fall headlong, we don't go screeching and squawking and frustration, we wait. We wait. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And by the way, the Hebrew word for wait here means to watch with expectancy. To wait with anticipation. To look for the Lord knowing He's coming. He's coming. And you live your life like that. And you will mount up with wings like eagles. Now, you students of prophecy, you're going to remember this. This analogy of eagles' wings is used for Israel again. It's used here in Exodus 19. It will be used, it's used in Deuteronomy 32. It's used again at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 14. Where we're told that the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. In the context of the book of Revelation, halfway through this seven-year tribulation, three and a half years plus three and a half years, halfway through, at that point, Israel will be brought out, rescued, taken out of Jerusalem, taken away from the grasp of the serpent. And she will be nourished for a time, times and half a time, again, three and a half years, in a place in the wilderness. Israel is the woman talked about in Revelation chapter 12. It's absolutely clear. You can see that in the first verse where the woman is described as having a crown with stars and the sun and the moon. It's a picture of Israel, of literally Israel and his wife and the twelve sons being the twelve stars. It's Israel. And she's not, by the way, notice, she's not carried up to heaven, but to a place prepared in the wilderness. Where is that place, by the way, in the wilderness? This is something, again, for you to study on your own. We can't know for sure, but Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, talk about a place called Selah. Selah in the land of Moab. What's Selah? And what is the land of Moab? Well, Selah is the Hebrew word for rock. The Greek counterpart for that word is Petra. 
Petra. They will be taken to a place called Petra in the land of Moab. Well, what's Moab? Moab is present-day Jordan. Interesting that in Jordan today is a city called Petra. You may have heard of it. It's a rock-walled city. Rock-hewn. Literally right in the rock. It's, it's got one entrance. It's 12 feet wide. The, rocks, uh, the rock walls are 200 feet high at its shortest point and 1,000 feet high at its highest point. And if you've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, you've seen Petra. Because that's where they film it. When they actually go into the cave there, that is Petra in Jordan. It's a tourist attraction today. And I submit that it's possible... It's possible that that may be the very place where God takes Israel to protect them during the tribulation. I'm not saying for sure, but there are those Bible scholars from the last century who believe it so avidly that they literally have taken clay pots, filled them with Bibles, with the New Testament scriptures highlighted to explain all of Israel in the New Testament, and they've stored them away all over Petra, just in case that's where the Jews end up. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't that be fun to be a Jew and you get there and you're like, I just don't understand what's going on. Hey, what's in this pot? And there's your answer right there. Petra. Well, it's an interesting study and you may want to just kind of do that on your own. But the idea in Isaiah 16 is this. Hide my people because a ruler is going to reign. Hide my people. But what does it mean that they have a place prepared on the two wings of an eagle? How does that figure in? Well, I'm looking forward to a box seat in heaven to see how that plays out because I have no idea. But the point is this. What God did for Israel in the Exodus, God will do for Israel in the tribulation. It's a very similar picture. He brought them out of Egypt. He is going to bring them out of the danger and into a place prepared for them in the wilderness. Just like now, they're in a place prepared for them in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, where they're going to receive amazing contact with God. Verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came up. Actually, hang on right there. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Here we see what God's intention was originally for Israel. Here's where we know. I've mentioned a couple times before that God intended for all Israel to be a nation of priests, not just the Levites. How do we know that? Verse 5, You shall be my own possession among all the people. Verse 6, A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The original intent was every Jew would be a priest. Not just one out of the uh, 12 tribes. Not just the Levites. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. God says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light, a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Israel, Israel was supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. When Jesus was speaking to all the Jewish people around him, remember most of Jesus' ministry was to Jews. And on the, ser- at the Sermon on the Mount, when he was up on the mountainside speaking to all the people, mostly Jews, what did he say? You are the light of the world. Now we immediately take that as Christians, and rightly so. I think it's well applied to Christians that we are the light of the world. We are now the bringer of God's truth. But he was talking to Jews at the time. You're the light of the world. The city on a hill is not to be hidden. You don't take a lamp and put a bushel over it and hide it. You're the light of the world. Jews, it is your responsibility. It is your call, the kingdom of priests, to bring God's good news to the Gentiles. But they didn't. 
Why? They turned inward. They became a people unto themselves. And I fear the same thing for the church today. When we, we become so focused on being about us and, and focus inward, looking at ourselves, meeting our needs, not caring about the world around us, but just us. It's about us. We've got to protect ourselves. We've got to huddle. And as we do that, folks, we become, as Israel became, inwardly focused as opposed to outwardly. But so great is God's plan. So great that even in their failure, salvation came to the Gentiles through the Jews. Through them, salvation came to the Gentiles anyway, and that very same salvation will return to them again, and you can read that in Romans chapter 11. But what does a priest do? You're called to be a nation of priests. What does a priest do? A priest stands before God on behalf of the people. And a priest stands before people on behalf of God. And Peter now says that role is handed to the church. Drawing off this very passage in Exodus, where, again, God says to Moses, Tell him to obey my voice and keep my covenant, and you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now Peter turns around in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are we a chosen race? So that we can proclaim. Why are we uh, his, his own possession? Why are we now a royal priesthood? Not so that we hold it all together inside our safe little bond, but that we are people who proclaim, who are telling the world about Jesus, the light of the world, this holy priesthood. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, check this out, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. It is like the ultimate human statement. Bring it on. I can do it. Everything you tell me, Lord, I got it covered. I can, I can follow the law. Yeah, lay it out. I'm good to go. I can handle this, Lord. We will do like a tribute to humanism right there. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. We got it covered, Lord. Go back and tell him. We'll follow the law. All these words, we'll do it. Yeah, we're ready. It's funny, they were dancing around a golden calf before the law even got down the mountain. But right now, Israel's saying, oh, no, no, we'll do it. We're on it. Count us in, Lord. And Paul says in Romans 7, 20, Man, on the one hand, I with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. And the reality is, we will not do. We cannot do. Try as we might, we'll fall. But again, thank God for His wings of grace that bear us up. Verse 9, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around. By the way, that's what the law does. It sets boundaries for us. 
You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. This is how serious God is about this whole mountain thing. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. I guess women were a little distracting back then. I don't know. Do not go near a woman. Moses, go tell the people, God says, something huge, something incredible is about to happen. For the first time in all of history, the entire congregation of people are going to hear the voice of God. It has never happened before, gang. God has spoken to individuals, to, to men, but not to a congregation, especially like this, of possibly three million people camped out, gathered around the mountain. He's never done it before. And now the whole congregation is going to hear the voice of the Lord. And the picture here is awesome. The people will be overwhelmed, amazed, stunned, awestruck at this incredible event. An event unlike any other in all of history. And God says, people, get ready. Get ready. Exodus 19 is not just a historical monument as we've seen with so many other passages of scripture in the past. Not just a moment in history, but a divine prophetic revelation. And I'll give you two things here to note and we'll be done tonight. It is a prophecy fulfilled. It is also a prophecy soon to be fulfilled. Two things to be clearly seen in chapter 19. A prophecy fulfilled and a prophecy soon to be fulfilled. Number one, a prophecy fulfilled. This great moment in Hebrew history, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, is celebrated by Jewish people even to this day. They have a feast that commemorates the giving of the law. It's called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. It's the fourth of the major feasts of Israel after the Feast of Passover. So the 14th of Nisan. And then the very next day immediately starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then on Sunday of that same week, in fact, when Jesus died on the Passover, you may recall, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a picture of the crucifixion, the Feast of the First Fruits was the day Jesus resurrected. All three of those still celebrated by Israel. But then a span of time happens. All three of those feasts, those important feasts, are sandwiched together over a three-day and then a week-long period for the people of Israel, all together there in the month of Nisan. But then some time elapses or lapses. Seven weeks of days, literally 50 days after the Passover, comes the next feast, and it's called the Feast of Weeks. And at the Feast of Weeks, the Jews celebrate the wheat harvest. They, they do what's called the waving of the omer, the waving of a sheaf of wheat. And at that time, they are praying, and it's interesting, they're praying for a pouring out of what's called the latter rains. Praying that the latter rains will come, will be poured out from heaven, that the wheat harvest might be wonderful, might be blessed with the pouring out, the outpouring of the latter rains. But this Feast of Weeks also commemorates, as I just said, it commemorates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Traditionally, rabbis teach this is when the law was given. And so when Jews even today celebrate the Feast of Weeks, they celebrate the law and the fact that it was given at Mount Sinai. Now Exodus 19 is a prophetic picture fulfilled of a particular Feast of Weeks which you already know about. 
The prophecy fulfilled again for the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the fast Passover, 50 in the Greek being Penta, Pentecost. The Feast of Weeks is Pentecost. What was it that happened at Pentecost? 1,500 years after this moment at Sinai, on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, Exodus 19, this story was prophetically fulfilled. Flip over to Acts chapter 2 and keep your finger in Exodus 19. Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. Listen closely. And again, keep your finger in Exodus 19 because you're going to jump back there and then jump back and be doing a little bit of jumping real quick here. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember that. And when this sound occurred, the the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them, each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Remember, every nation under heaven was represented and they were all hearing them speak in their own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them all in our own tongues, speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? What does this mean? Interesting. Interesting. At Pentecost, how did the Holy Spirit come down? How did He come down? As of tongues of fire. He come down, came down like fire. Now, at Sinai... At Sinai, how did he come down? If you flip back to Exodus 19 and look at verse 18, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently, tongues of fire, as fire came down on Mount Sinai. So fire came down on the apostles at Pentecost, 1500 years after the giving of the law. At Sinai. At Sinai, how did God's voice sound? Look at verse 19 of Exodus 19. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Trumpet sound. We'll come back to that in a moment. But God answered him with thunder. His voice sounded like thunder. At Pentecost, at Pentecost, how did God's voice sound? Listen to this. Rabbis have long taught and believed that when God spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai, His voice came in 70 tongues, which they believed at the time was the number of languages spoken on earth. 70 different languages. And when God spoke at Mount Sinai, His voice was heard or came in 70 different tongues. And they call this voice of multiple languages, quote, rabbis, rabbis here, Jewish people, call this... (laughs) The voice of many waters. 
which is exactly what the voice of Jesus is called and how it's described in Revelation 1.15. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Because when God speaks, He doesn't just speak to one people group. He's speaking to the world. Seventy tongues, the voice of many waters. And back in in Acts chapter 2, what happened at Pentecost? Everybody heard the word in their own language. Every language of every nation represented on earth at the time came and heard being preached to them the word of God in their own language as of the voice of many waters. Incredible. Amazing. Parallel here. A prophecy fulfilled. By the way, some of you may recall this, that uh, when the law was given, when the law came down, at the giving of the law at Sinai, a terrible thing happened. Because the people were in rebellion as Moses came down with the law, you you recall what happened. They were dancing around the golden calf. And that day, that day, 3,000 Israelites were slain. By contrast, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Gentiles were saved. Same number. It's one of those coincidences. I don't think so. Romans chapter 8 verse 2 says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. When the law came down the mountain, 3,000 were killed. But when the spirit came down with grace and freedom at Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. Do you see that dramatic contrast? A prophecy fulfilled. And we just keep seeing this intricacy of scripture. But there's also a prophecy soon to be fulfilled. This is the last one, but watch, you've got to get this, understand this. We see God in three persons represented here in Exodus 19. First, God the Father coming down literally to Mount Sinai, bringing the law. Then we see God the Spirit coming down, portrayed in Exodus 19, but happening literally coming down in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. But the next appointment, God the Father came down, God the Spirit came down. We would expect, we would assume then, that God the Son would be next. And he is. Because the next appointment on the prophetic calendar is a meeting with God the Son in the clouds and it's the rapture of the church. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Rick. I thought you said Jesus was going to set foot on planet Earth. Oh, he is. He is. At the glorious appearing at his second coming, parousia, to church, to earth. The second coming. But that's not the rapture. There is a time that precedes that when we will meet him in the clouds. Look at Exodus 19.19 again. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Back in verse 13, God says, When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, a blasting trumpet, does that sound familiar to you? Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. John is writing the Revelation. And he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me. And he said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately, John says, Oh, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. The blast of a trumpet. The last trumpet. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. And I hope you're getting this verse really in your heads. I use it a lot, and it's on purpose. 
This is a verse we should be very familiar with. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, and listen to the description, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. But Zechariah 14.4 says he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. Yes, because there are two different things that are happening here. There are two installments, if you will, of the second coming of Jesus. One is the rapture of the church where believers are caught up and called to be with him in the clouds. The second is the return of Jesus to set foot on planet earth and set things right. And he will. He will. This event, the rapture of the church, is powerfully pictured back here in Exodus 19. Voice like a trumpet. In fact, the great event at Mount Sinai is called the first trumpet. Because it is the first time in Scripture where the trumpet of God sounds. It's the first trumpet of the Lord. But when Jesus calls, it is called the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you, Paul says, I love this, a mystery. A mystery. It's the Greek word mysterion. Which means something that was previously unknown but now unveiled. A previous mystery. It was not known until now. But check this out. He says, we will not all sleep, but we will be changed. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. It's the perfect sign to hang in a nursery. Think about it. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, he says, in the twinkling of an eye. Some of you will get that tomorrow morning. You'll wake up and go... That was good, I guess. In the twinkling of an eye, Paul says, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. What trumpet? The last trumpet. And the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, that is those who are alive, just like in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, those who are alive will be caught up. We will be changed. It's very clear. Now listen, there are many trumpets mentioned in the Bible. There's the first trumpet, the trumpet blast. It comes from where, I don't know, from the top of the mountain. The voice of God trumpets the first trumpet. We see the trumpets of Joshua as they march around Jericho. And many times the blowing is called the shofar. It's a huge ram's horn that is blown even today in Israel. They will blow the shofar. And shofar, show good. They're blowing it. But now, we come to this last trumpet. Now someone will say, hey, Revelation though, book of Revelation, aren't there seven trumpet judgments? And isn't the seventh trumpet judgment, that's the last trumpet, right? No, it's not. It's not. And those of you who study these things, it's important because those who say that there's a mid-tribulational rapture, that the church is going to go through half the tribulation, they say it because it's the last trumpet sounds. Well, that's the seventh trumpet of the seven trumpet judgments. So when that sounds, that's when we go, and that's halfway through. Problem is, those seven trumpet judgments are angels' trumpets, not God's. They're specifically blown by angels. They are not described as the voice of the Lord. There is a first trumpet that is God's voice. Then there is a last trumpet that is God's voice. And I submit to you humbly that the last trumpet is God calling His people home in the rapture of the church before the tribulation begins on earth. Why? Because we were not destined for wrath, but for salvation. Many trumpets are pictured in the Bible. There are only two that are trumpets of God. Numbers chapter 10, and this is interesting, verse 1 tells us, The Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, Make yourself two trumpets. Two trumpets of silver. Silver in the Bible. Silver in the Bible is a picture of redemption. 
And you can track that through. Silver pictures redemption. Make two trumpets of silver. Of hammered work you shall make them. And you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camps set out. Two trumpets representing redemption. Redemption. The first trumpet blown by God as the people are going to encamp around the mountain. And their redemption is pictured in the law, this perfect law. Oh, they can't keep the law, but their redemption is going to come right through their lineage, through Jesus, and grace will overshadow and overtake the law. At Sinai, we hear the first trumpet blown. But the last trumpet, the first being for Israel, the last trumpet is for the church. And at the rapture, we will hear that last trumpet. And what is the trump of God? It is the voice of God. The voice of many waters. The voice of thunder. The voice as of a trumpet. You know what's wonderful? As we look back here in Exodus 19 and we see the the prophecy that was fulfilled, that is Pentecost, and the prophecy soon to be, I believe, fulfilled, and that is the rapture of the church, the blowing of the trumpet, the salvation of God's people. What's fascinating to me is the pictures in this chapter, these prophecies that we look at, the prophetic backdrop for Mount Death, the prophetic backdrop for Thorny Mountain, the prophetic backdrop for the giving of the law, which was not a wonderful event, it was a terrifying event. The prophetic backdrop is grace. Grace. It's redemption. God weaves it into the picture. We sitting here on this night, so many thousands of years later, 3,500 years after the law was given, we sit here tonight and look at this, and what do we see? We see the law given, but prophetically, we see grace. We see God's grace. When is all this going to happen? Well, I was going to tell you this before we started. I'm going to tell you. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Okay. Really, really. Two minutes. We're out of here. I was going to tell you before we started that tonight, tonight is the night I reveal to you when Jesus is coming back. Are you ready for this? Ready? I know when he's coming. No, no. It's more specific than that. Are you ready? Look at verse 11 of chapter 19. Let them be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down. Why? I just had a few things to clean up in heaven before we brought the law. So we needed three extra days to do it. Some vacuuming needed to take place. And you know, you get some things together, take care of some paperwork, pay the bills. And then I'll come down in three days when I'm ready. No. No. Everything given in Scripture is given of great significance. Don't miss these things. God says on the third day. On the third day, I will come down. We're going to talk more about this on Sunday, about the preparation for the third day. But for now, understand this. Jesus coming, the rapture of the church is going to happen on the third day. Well, that's when he resurrected, of course. We saw that. We know that. The third day. But the third day is so significant. What do you mean? Listen, gang, we are at the tail end of the first two days. Now keep your thinking caps on. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us. This is Israel speaking. But He will heal us. He has wounded us. But He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. For two days Israel has been torn. If a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. For two days Israel has been torn, wounded, hurt. 
for the last 2,000 years. But the third day is coming. We are about to come into the third day. What happens on the third day? He will revive us, they say. After two days, he'll raise us up on the third day. And for two days they've been torn, but the third day is coming. But what's the time frame? When on that third day? Let's get even more specific. Verse 16 in Exodus 19. It came about on the third day when it was morning. When's Jesus coming back? When's the rapture going to happen? Morning of the third day. See, it's specific, isn't it? Morning of the third day. Gang, this, this word, and you can close your Bibles. I'm going to read to you one last verse from Psalm 90. We'll let it be our prayer as we go out tonight. This word, morning, is the Hebrew word, baboker. Baboker. It's a very specific word. And it's used here in Exodus 19.16. It's on that day, in morning of the third day, that Jesus will return, that God will come down. Morning of the third day. And Psalm 90, beginning in verse 1, Moses writes, Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man into dust. You say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, and they fall asleep. In the morning, in the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, oh, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger. Has Israel not been consumed? Then by your wrath, we, we have been dismayed. For you have placed our iniquities before you. How do you do that? In the law. Our secret sins and in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we will fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. But listen, listen to this, verse 13. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Oh, satisfy us in the morning. Babo care. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Father, satisfy us in the morning. The morning of the third day as you came down on Sinai. We long for, we look forward to, we, we appeal to you to come again and take your people home. As children of the light with eyes wide open, preparing for that day, looking for it, living lives as toward it. We seek that day. We want that day. And we pray it comes oh so quickly, so very soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we do pray. Amen.